Melanie Abdel-Razak um, speaking with Dr. David Huey uh, from the MD Anderson Cancer Center, a well-known and established researcher in the field of palliative care. He's visiting us here in Calgary as part of the Royal College Balfour M. Mount Visiting Professorship in Palliative Medicine. I also have Dr. Jessica Simon here with us today, who is our division head in palliative medicine. And we have some learners here, Catherine and Sam, who are our our uh, fellows in palliative medicine. So we're just having a conversation today. We're lucky enough to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Huey. Yeah, hello. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, we have a few different questions. This might be a bit of a smorgasbord mishmash of questions for you today. But uh, the one thing we wanted to start off with is on our tertiary palliative care unit, we have been talking recently about trying to promote more quality improvement work. We think that we should be a clinical center of excellence and perhaps that this might be a nice stepping stone to start um, getting our multidisciplinary team involved in projects that maybe in the future turn into more uh, formal research type projects. So I have just a few questions for you. Some of them are a little bit tongue in cheek. We don't take ourselves very seriously in this podcast, so bear with me. All right. There's some cheesy jokes sometimes and all that stuff. But the first question is, why should we care about quality improvement in palliative care? Well, palliative care is all about quality, right? And, um, you know, improving quality of care, quality of life for our patients. And I think um, the palliative care unit is um, really not only an excellent place for patient care, but really answering some of the most fundamental questions we have, particularly about patients closer to the end of life. Um, so it's a controlled unit, so I, I think it's a beautiful place to, um, you know, study and, and learn. And I think quality improvement is certainly a way to um, provide some preliminary signals to um, move forward in some more research directions. That's great, thank you. I know the Canadian climate is quite different than the US. In the US, there's sometimes financial incentives to create quality improvement projects. Uh, not that I'm an expert in this, but I've heard of the Medicare uh, pay for performance um, sort of markers, that kind of a thing. So whereas we may not have those kind of direct incentives in Canada, I think what you're talking about in terms of patient care levels essentially makes a difference. And I also think that um, from a policy level, from a governmental level, it's something we should be aware of, that we have to show our value as a palliative care team. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. What do you think palliative care professionals should know about quality improvement? Um, maybe we can, we can talk about it in the inpatient setting or just generally. If we're thinking about palliative care and quality improvement, are there some unique challenges or considerations that you think we should be aware of? Well, I think palliative care is still growing as a field and there are lots of opportunities to look for how we can improve things, you know, like let's say um, in the palliative care unit, well, can we learn from um, a patient who just fell, you know, and have some quality improvement projects to minimize that from happening. So um, sometimes we just do it, you know, as part of the clinical team, we work together, brainstorm and then um, make it happen. Um, but it would be nice if we are doing it, we are also capturing the data, you know, and I'm um, saying before the initiative versus after, and um, what are the outcomes, and um, not only to really um, help on hospital administration, but share with the world through publications and um, some journals certainly are very open to some quality improvement projects. Uh, so I, I think um, that's um, 
you know, a good way to, um, you know, get published and also at the same time um, improve the quality overall. So that's just some example, but really you can think of everything that we do, you know, from talking about how can we move the time of referral earlier um, to, um, you know, supporting caregivers through a new initiative in caregiver support group, you know. So those are all tremendous opportunities to um, do some good work um, to document the outcomes. That's great. Thank you. I know that when you're talking about quality improvement work, we have to have a very laser-focused problem that we're focusing on and it falls from there. But I wonder if you recommend a systematic collection of specific data that may facilitate, you know, when we do come up with a question, uh, starting to answer the questions when problems arise. I don't know if that's a clear question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I I think, um, you know, it's always good to have a running database of, um, you know, kind of symptoms or patient concerns that you have, you know. Um, So, and then on top of that, you know, you know, for a specific project, you may have specific variables that you may be asking about. Um, but, you know, I think certainly symptom distress, you know, some of the outcomes in terms of patient survival or place of discharge, you know, all of them are good basic core things to have, um, depending on the setting, once again, right? I think one, one good um, thing to build on the quality improvement projects is to have a running database, you know, in each um, image um, center, you know, and so you have an inpatient database, a particular unit database, um, a clinic database, and then you kind of build up on the inf- information over time, and that, you know, could, um, and if it's, especially if it's linked to outcomes, can be awfully powerful. So you don't have to only do a quality improvement project, but also kind of almost have some retrospective kind of examination of, okay, how have things been changing over time? Identify gaps of care or room for improvement and things that are changing actively. So I think um, tremendous opportunities in palliative care. They don't have to be super expensive, you know, but you need the dedicated people, you know, to, to be, and, and I know clinicians, we are all busy, but these are, there are lots of, I would call, low-hanging fruits that are available um, for us to um, work on, to share, and um, ultimately improve the quality, you know, for our patients. Yeah, thanks again. So just continuing on that theme of having a running da- database that we can mm-hmm. hopefully use as a resource when we do develop our questions for a quality improvement project. You know, we're lucky, we're lucky in Alberta, we do have... Um, First of all, in the hospital setting, we have our electronic medical record system, but also a provincial database that connects us and, and allows us to see a lot of access a lot of data um, for patients across the province. But what I wonder is, are there certain patient reported outcome measures that you would recommend as sort of a bare minimum that a tertiary palliative care unit collect? I, I would say, you know, obviously, symptom distress is um, very helpful, um, and of, of course, um, we use ESAS um, as right. our go-to. Um, I think, um, of we course, we also at the same time recognize that patient report outcomes are particularly challenging in a palliative unit setting because half the patients may be delirious, right? Um, having said that, we can also document who are the ones who are providing, you know, who are providing exactly. the, the outcome measure. So sometimes it may be a caregiver surrogate, you know, and to recognize that there is a difference um, in, in that information. Um, performance status, you know, it's not patient reported, but can be very helpful. And um, I, I think we also um, assess some um, delirium routinely, you know, in our palliative care unit. So we use a standardized measure because it's so common. Um, so uh, the one that we use is a memorial delirium assessment scale, but you know, it's ultimately up to the individuals, right, to, mm-hmm. to kind of decide. 
there are things that you know I think would be very nice to have, but um, maybe I haven't seen it being standardized altogether. There are many domains of palliative care, such as prognostic understanding or discussions, right? And the basic care planning, you know, goals of care, um, all those things that are can, if they can be more standardized routinely, they are very powerful. Again, they're not explicitly patient reported, but I think um, are essential for any um, data queries um, right. down the road. Indicators of quality of care, possibly. Uh, yeah, and then yeah, exactly linking to some outcomes such as you know, kind of um, you know, the last three days of life what happened to to patients that have been um, already um, published quite extensively um, by many groups. Yeah. Thank you. And we actually do use the, so just for our yeah. learners listening in, the ESAS refers to the Edmonton Symptom Assessment Scale, and we do collect that regularly on our unit, um, as well as the Palliative Performance Scale, which is the functional um, yeah. score, uh, and we do have a delirium score as well. So that's good. I mean, it's just good for a good reminder to us about the importance of collecting those. And I know um, I do talk to our team often about the fact that with the ESAS, we can use surrogate reporting as well. Yeah, and we do it daily known. to see yeah. the serial changes over time. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. 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 that's wonderful. Do you believe, you know, there's all sorts of resources for learning about quality improvement um, and all sorts of terminology with regards to quality improvement. Um, we've heard about Six Sigma, Lean, Alberta Health Services has their own um, training courses. Do you have any tips for uh, palliative care providers who might be interested in pursuing quality improvement in terms of learning resources or courses or references? Well, you know, you already bring up some great, you know, courses. I think whatever is available to your hospital locally, I think, um, you know, um, but ultimately I think it's um, about, you know, not only learning but doing, you know, like I can mm -hmm. get your, you know, feet wet and actually kind of learn along the way with um, an experienced mentor and then develop those projects along yeah. the way. Maybe time. fail yeah. forward, as they mm -hmm. say, learn from your mistakes and yeah, yeah. keep going. And that's what yeah. quality improvement yeah, is all exactly. about, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, okay, no, that's great, thank you. Um, yeah, I don't know if anybody else has any questions relating to that, or we can completely switch topics as well. We have a few other questions for you that we're interested in, and uh, the questions are, uh, we think that you have a very unique position in that you're both a palliative care physician and a practicing medical oncologist. So our questions for you are, um, what are the top three things that, as a medical oncologist, you wished palliative care physicians knew, and the reverse of that, which is top three things as a palliative care physician you wish medical oncologists knew? Yeah, those are very um, interesting questions. Um, so I, I think um, from the medical oncology perspective, um, we, uh, I will, you know, I, I think um, we, we hope that the palliative care team sees us as the ally. You know, sometimes we say, hmm, these are the people on the dark side giving chemo to patients. But in reality, I think um, oncologists really care. We want, you know, to do the best for our patients. Um, and um, so what we would like to ask for is, um, you know, maybe more um, communication, dialogue, you know, to, to discuss things. Because um, um, I think, um, you know, sometimes the patients on some kind of treatment, maybe um, it would not be compatible with what um, the palliative care um, team want to recommend. For example, um, patients on immunotherapy, you know, um, being on corticosteroid is generally not a good idea. Um, 
a lot of the times unless they have severe side effects. So um, you know, I think um, um, just having a bit more understanding, you know, of um, the potential complications related to interactions is also very helpful. Yeah, I think that's very useful. And the fact that as palliative care physicians, we can't know all of the medical oncology therapies, and there's always more of them. Uh, so yeah. having that communication is so very... So the dialogue is the key then, rather than we don't expect palliative care doctors to know every single thing about cancer treatments, and it is really getting increasingly complex, but kind of dividing, you know, kind of our role and sorting out, okay, I'm going to do this, and you're going to, you know, do that, and, you know, that um, our recommendations are on the same page, you know, with the patient. I also wish that maybe, you know, they would know that, hey, some of our treatments are, you know, really good and can help patients a lot, you know, or even though um, sometimes, um, you know, the opposite, you know, is true. So um, um, understanding a bit more about the natural history um, and um, what to expect can sometimes allow them to communicate with patients better as well. So... Do you think that uh, with all of the newer treatments uh, that medical oncologists have at their disposal, do you think that's uh, pushing them more towards the uh, cliche that we think of with a medical oncologist, which is that they just continue to push treatments on a patient pretty much until the patient can't take any more? Uh, or do you think the maybe the younger medical oncologists are uh, more open to the fact that their patients die and they don't have to treat them right to the end? Yeah, well, I think ultimately it's going to be a range, you know. I mean, it really depends on the type of patients. For example, heme patients, they you know, have more, more, even more options, you know. And, um, you know, some of them, even though they're very sick, there's this chance of cure. And ultimately it's that fine discussion of, hey, is this something weighing the risks and benefits worthwhile, right? So, um, but I, I do agree with you um, that, um, you know, there are always also options, you know, other than cancer treatment that patients should be aware of. And that is why I think um, it's good to, you know, have patients be, be, um, be um, optimizing their, their function through palliative care and then they quality of life regardless. And then, um, you know, some of those dialogues about cancer treatment, if they, you know, if they decide to go for it, um, well, they will be in the best state possible. But if they are, you know, deciding against treatment, well, at least their quality of life is looked after. Yeah. So, um, so that is a continuous process. And I think, again, you know, sometimes if the palliative care team is quite worried, you know, hey, let's have a talk and maybe I can say, wow, this treatment may have seen amazing outcomes, you know, and um, I still think it's worthwhile and the side effects is very minimal. So it's a constant balance of risks and benefits on top of patients' kind of preference. Sometimes it's good to have see the other perspective and again, that dialogue is very critical. Thank you. Um, now, what, uh, what do you wish medical oncologists knew about palliative care? What would yeah. be one of your top one or I, two? I think, um, you know, I, th- I would still say there's a lot of um, um, stigma associated with palliative care, you know, that um, even though I think it's evolving very fast now, um, but um, people still are concerned that palliative care, you know, um, just mentioning that term would take away hope from patients, that, you know, it would... Um, communicate a sense of abandonment but um, um, when in reality palliative care is best done when it is given um, concurrently with the cancer treatments and um, so I think um, that is one 
important thing. I would say to, you know, if we were to involve um, palliative care, it would, the best time would be to involve them fairly early on, knowing that in oncology, even if we try to do everything ourselves, we can only do so much, you know, and I think um, having the team, you know, um, that specialize in this area and not just a single discipline, but multiple of them really can um, bring much more comfort to and, um, and supportive care to our patients and their families too. Um, so timely referral maybe is the second message. And the third maybe message is to have um, you know, kind of looking for the symptoms, um, you know, in the clinic, do some systematic screening, because if you don't look, patients don't tell, and then there's a lot of under-recognition. Now, just because we recognize it doesn't mean that we have to be the one necessarily responsible, that, but it might be a good trigger to say, hey, you have, you have a supportive care team who can really um, provide the care for you, um, and while we're working together side-by-side side to maximize your Outcome. And what, why don't you think um, patients tell medical oncologists about their symptoms? Yeah, well, because um, that's a great question. Um, the reality is some patients are, um, they are very mindful of oncologist time. They say, well, I only have five, ten minutes with this oncologist, you know. Um, am I going to tell them, you know, how, how much I want the treatment and understand what the treatment information is or do I want to distract them and talk about, you know, my pain and then they don't get to talk about treatment. In fact, so many are worried that by mentioning that they are in a lot of they have a lot of tiredness, they have a lot of you know, nausea, fatigue, uh, pain, that the oncologists say, well, I think you're too weak to get treatment. So, you know, there's that um, potential conflict of interest if we mention it. Um, so, um, and then sometimes some patients, well, even if I mention it, not much is done, so I, what's the point of mentioning it? And some even have the misunderstanding this is normal part of my, you know, of what I should expect, so I should just endure it, you know? So there are many reasons why patients don't mention it but the reality is they don't unless we ask you know explicitly and we find that um, um, doing this patient reported outcome systematically um, you know there's even randomized trials showing that they can not only improve quality of life but um, you know survival so I think um, you know um, the oncology team probably would want to take advantage of these um, simple assessments. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, final question, you were saying timely um, referral to palliative care, and um, I think I've heard you actually say, you know, define what timely means to you uh, from an evidence-based yeah, perspective. Yeah, I think um, timely, you know, where, um, is, um, is a little bit different from early. Early is like, well, you know, within maybe eight weeks of diagnosis, just, um, you know, see palliative care. Um, even though that may be very reasonable, it would be kind of a little bit harder to, to um, for the palliative care team to see unless we start to clone them, you know, significantly. So um, I think the timely is um, when the patient needs palliative care, that is when they're engaging the team. And so um, while we're doing systematic screening regularly, we will be able to get patients to be seen in a fairly um, you know, timely fashion. So we define timely not necessarily exactly by timing, you know, but um, by patients' needs and um, to trigger that referral so that the team can see. But typically, if they do this timely um, referral, um, it is um, not going to be patients in anything more than six months, you know, would be kind of at least a time frame. So you have multiple visits to be able to engage the patients and family and lots of opportunities to prevent the, um, you know, hospitalization, ICU, death, you know, um, so 
um, that's what timely palliative care can really um, support. So once again, referring patients based on um, routine screening um, and those who are identified to have supportive care needs get referred is a very timely kind of intervention and um, typically between 6 to 12 months of survival and some will even argue in up to 24 months um, um, will, will be kind of the roughly the right time. Okay? Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. We hope you enjoyed our episode today. We'd like to extend a special thank you to Zahid Damani for producing and editing our episodes, as well as for our beautiful website, Kasim Harani for the music, and Nishan Sharma for all of his support getting us up and running. Thank you also to our financial sponsor, Dr. Srini Chari. If you liked this episode, please let us know by clicking like and subscribing to our podcast. You can find It's Not All About Death on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform for podcasts. You can also find our episodes and connect with us anytime by visiting our website at itsnotallaboutdeath.com or on Instagram at itsnotallaboutdeath.com.